What is on my bucket list is a deep desire to embrace the present moment as fully and as deeply and as richly as possible. That God's home address in my life is this present moment. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is author, speaker, beloved Renovare Institute faculty member, and retired Methodist pastor from Johannesburg, South Africa, the man who married Debbie, Trevor Hudson. I've really come to value when I sit down to interview someone and they seem to have the strength and maturity to hold a unique posture of openness, a willingness to be vulnerable. This has always been my experience with Trevor, whether interviewing him or sitting down for a meal. And Trevor's written a new book titled Seeking God, Finding Another Kind of Life with St. Ignatius and Dallas Willard. This so happens to be the first book we're exploring in the new season of the Renovare Book Club, you can find out more information about the book club on our website, renovare.org. I spoke with Trevor from his home in South Africa. Trevor, I'm curious to know how you discovered St. Ignatius and how he's impacted your life. He came across my pass in 1990. Um, I uh, I can remember the exact moment I was at a retreat center talking to one of my favorite Anglican nuns, uh, Sister Maureen, and sharing with her a little bit of a, a vocational crisis that I was in. And what had really happened was I'd had a vocational dream for about 15, 16 years, and I it had just been, as it were, shattered, and I wasn't too sure what I was going to do next vocationally. And so she just said off the cuff to me, Trevor, why don't you do the spiritual exercises of Ignatius? And I said, what, what, what are that? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, you know, there's an Anglican monk just down the road from us here, and he takes people through the exercises, and his name is Father Andrew. Why don't you go knock on the door and ask him to take you through the exercises? And that's what I did. And uh, I went, I knocked on the door. Still remember, he came uh, wearing this black and white kind of cloak, and he kept muttering as we walked down the passageway, I'm not too sure what a high church Anglican like me is doing with a low church Methodist like you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that was a little bit, you know, of the gift of Ignatius, I think, and has been the gift of Ignatius of bringing people together from very, very different backgrounds. And so Father Andrew... It took me through the exercises. It took about, I think, about 10, 11 months. I met with him once a week. Uh, That was my entry point. What was that experience like for you personally to go through the exercises? Mm, I have never prayed more since that time. (laughs) That (laughs) discipline of spending an hour in the morning and 15 minutes at night, I've it, it was it was quite rigorous for me, and you know the kids was were quite young. I had to get up quite early, and that was that was quite something. 
So just the kind of externals of setting aside that time was hugely challenging for me. And also, perhaps I need to say that in the light of what brought me into the exercises, which was this kind of vocational crisis, the exercises became for me a container in which I was able, on the one hand, to face some inordinate attachments that I had. So it was a bit of a journey into just a little bit more freedom internally. And on the other hand, it provided some space to, in fact, make a renewed vocational choice, just to get a sense of maybe not where I was going to go over the next five, 10 years, but just it just gave me a bit of space to make a vocational choice to go in a, in a little bit of a different direction. For those listening who don't know, could you give just a very brief description of the exercises? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, the exercises really arose out of Ignatius's own experience, so they weren't, as it were, constructed within a, in you know, in an office. Uh, Ignatius uh, just reflected very, I think, very deeply on his own experience, what had helped him, what hadn't helped him, and so coming out of his own experience, he puts together this, could we say, manual. It has four basic movements, uh, the first movement around God's love and our sinfulness, the second movement, the life of Jesus, the third movement, the passion and death of Jesus, the fourth movement, the, resur- the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's a, it's a kind of journey that obviously, as you've listened to me, is very Christ-focused and is designed to bring the retreatant into not a kind of theoretical interaction with Christ, but a lived interaction with Christ. And a, and a, good, a good giver of the exercises would adapt them very, very carefully to whoever he or she is giving them. So I would describe them as a, a kind of a prayerful, Christ-focused journey. And so I would quickly say the, the book is not to be read it's, it would be like reading a recipe book on cooking. It's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a book that gets done. It needs to be experienced, yeah. And it's a, quite a commitment. On both sides, mate, you know, not only on my side, but on the side of, of Father Andrew, you know, he was going to meet with me once a week for an hour. He was going to prepare the material each week. And it's not, as it were, tin food that you just give. You know, each week has to be constructed, as it were, as we go, so that he can be responsive to to what God is doing in my life. And so a huge commitment from from both the giver of the exercises and the person doing them. Is it six months? Is that... It took me just on 11 months. So it was daily, right? Like an hour. So that, yeah, right. That was an hour a day. uh, And then 15 minutes in the evening, well, 10, 15 minutes in the evening, doing some kind of reflection examen on the day. Mm -hmm. And then meeting and meeting then with him also uh, once a week. And that meeting, I think, was between 45 minutes an hour. 
I remember having to travel quite far to meet him each day. So it was quite a huge commitment. I traveled about an hour to be with him and then an hour home afterwards. So it was a a huge commitment. <laughs> yes, but it sounds like very worthwhile, very, very helpful. You've been able to lead people through the exercises through these years. Yeah, you know, once I'd done it, I just felt that it was it had really been a treasure. And and I wanted to I wanted to share it with others, particularly those in my own tradition, uh, which was within the Methodist family. And so I began hanging out with the Jesuits because <laughs> they are the people who, you know, who do this kind of thing and went to one or two Jesuits and just simply asked them, you know, w- will you allow me to be your apprentice and will you teach me uh, how to do this? And and they were very and have been up to till today so generous in their encouragement and just helping me to give them in a way that would honor the exercises and keep their integrity. So it has been a very big part of my life. I think since about the mid I did them in 1990. I started giving them, I think, around 1995. And almost every year, Nate, since 95, I've given them to two or three people each year. Mm. Uh, so it's been a huge um, investment, but I feel that I've been able to share a treasure with a number of people and now able to maybe also help others to give them as well. And I feel this to be a huge part of my own, I don't know, my own vocation at the moment, just helping people to give the exercises. Mm-hmm. Same question about Dallas. How did you mm. discover Dallas Willard and how has he yeah. impacted your life? Oh, that went back just a little bit before 1985 in bed with mumps and someone gives me an audio cassette of Dallas teaching on the kingdom and that just really found its way into my heart. I wrote to him to say thank you so much for the tape and I had the audacity to invite him to come to South Africa with very little that I could offer to him by way of uh, honorarium or anything I could, uh, you know, he wasn't known uh, in any way here in South Africa. Uh, too well known. Uh, there were a group of people who, were, who that had met him um, in Durban two years prior to my hearing that audio cassette, and then he did come out. He came out, and it was I think the first of four 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 new trips. He came out in 1987, and just really invested himself in a group of folk in South Africa for about three weeks here in Johannesburg and also in Cape Town. And I I think South Africa, I think it had a special place in his heart. He certainly gave us a lot of his time and making four trips across <laughs> across the ocean was a huge investment by him. And so and so there was I think through these visits, a sense of of just friendship that developed. And I will always, always be grateful, not only for his words, even more so for his friendship and presence in our, in our life as a family. Mm. What did that friendship bring to you and your family? For my children, Dallas was a credible witness to the faith. 
And he was able to meet both my son and my daughter where they were in their lives. Um, so for my daughter, who has a capacity for mathematics and for conversations about infinity, which I do not have a capacity for, <laughs> Dallas, you know, could engage that and could engage with interest, my son's world of sport. And so just kind of met them where they were in a way that was credible. I think they enjoy, they just enjoyed hanging out for them and just having him, you know, in our home, myself and Debbie, and just kind of, you know, late night conversations about things that matter. And those conversations still linger and... Uh, still shape our lives uh, and shape our life as a couple as well. How did the idea come to write a book involving these these two friends? Two people. Yeah. I need to credit Debbie. Uh, Debbie's the woman I'm married to. I need to. She said to me. Uh, she said this to me about six, seven years ago. She said, Trevino, you need to write about seeking. You've been a seeker ever since I've known you. And so she planted the idea of seeking in my heart. And when she suggested I write a book, and knowing that Debbie has never read anything that I've written, <laughs> I, was, I, I was rather intrigued that she knew what I needed to write about. So I took her very seriously. And then I think what characterized both Ignatius and Dallas, they were both seekers. And so this theme of seeking kind of came together. And then when I came across, tucked away in Dallas's book, The Divine Conspiracy, that he thought the spiritual exercises were one of the best curriculums for Christ-likeness provided, and this is his proviso, they are suitably adapted, and Ignatius would be the first one to say they need to be suitably adapted. You know, when Dallas kind of said that, and having had that experience myself of the exercises, I just felt some connections coming together. And and I wanted to explore them. And I think they have so much in common around the gospel life of Jesus. You know, the exercises are rooted in the gospels. And then I never forget sitting once late at night with Dallas and saying, you know, I never forget, I had my yellow pad with me and I wanted to, I guess, impress him with us, you know, do you have any important literature that I really, books that I really need to read philosophically, theologically. And, uh, and then he said, Trevor, you know, I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think maybe the next, maybe the next 20 years, just give yourself, you know, so you had the similar emphases on the centrality of, of Christ and the centrality of the Gospels. And I think that was another connecting point, that somehow across the centuries, they were both emphasizing something very similar. I just thought, 
maybe I would like just to bring those two voices together in a homely way, not in an academic way, just uh, in a homely way. And then in some way, just put that interaction through my own South African voice as well. Tell us um, a little about the book. Well, the book, the book is, is structured, uh, is shaped around the exercises. So again, I need to give a quick disclaimer that it's not there to take anyone uh, through the exercises, but if one reads the book, one will get a sense of the dynamic of the exercises. So the book itself, the chapters are shaped around the exercises. And then through each of the chapters, two or three, what I've called seeking activities or seeking exercises, just so that it can be a little bit of a process for the reader as well to engage their own seeking journey and bring their seeking journey into some kind of interaction with Ignatius, with Dallas, and with some of the content of the book. The term seeker, at least in the States, is, is usually referenced uh, in Christian context as kind of a non-Christian that the right. church is wooing in, uh, kind of seeker-friendly. You're working with this word far beyond that. Uh, right. What does it mean to you to be a seeker? Uh, you know, yeah, you know, I did want to do a little bit of deconstruction around the word, <laughs> particularly within the context where seeker does, as you say, Nate, means either someone who's lost and we need to go find them. And then, and I think there is a little bit of a, a narrative that, you know, once you become a follower of Christ, you are now no longer a seeker because <laughs> Everything, you know, right. But for me, seeking, I think there's a sense in which our seeking journey really begins as we open ourselves up to a Christ-following journey. And Christ takes us on a journey of uh, seeking God, of seeking what it means to be faithful to God, what it means to live with God. So I'm hoping to reclaim the word seeking as a way of life for us uh, as Christ followers. And there's a little bit of play on words because we don't only seek God, but God is a seeking God. Uh, Mm, And, you know, that God also seeks us and that our own seeking of God is really, I really do believe so deeply, a, a bit of an echo of God's longing for us, and that there's a sense in which God's seeking always precedes our seeking and, in fact, prompts it. So there's a bit of a play on, not a play on words, but a a kind of two ways of holding this God being the seeking God and us seeking God. Mm -hmm. And I think if I can maybe just without saying too much that it's for me, it's not a how do I say this? Not an exclusively spiritual thing. That's that I seek God in every dimension of my life. And one of the great gifts of Ignatius, and it's been a real gift for me, is that I read he 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 liberated me to seek God in everything, to seek God everywhere, in every experience of my life, in every encounter of my life in every event of my life. 
And for me, that was one of the great, one of the great gifts of the exercises. And if in some way, small way, this book whets the appetite for us to seek and to find God in everything and in everyone, then I will be, I'll be really happy. A bit of a strange question. Uh, so if it doesn't work, perfect. When Debbie referenced you as a seeker, is there a tension in that? Uh, does she mean it all in a positive? I, I mean, I don't know. I think both, both and, Nate. You know, I, I can still remember writing a letter to Dallas, sharing with him my own concern about my own restlessness and discontent. And one of the great gifts that he gave me in that response to that letter was to really embrace my own sense. He didn't talk me out of my sense of discontentedness <laughs> or restlessness. But he said, you know, he said, Trevor, I've got a hunch that you're never going to be content. And embrace the discontent and let that lead you in your life. And so on the one hand, maybe when you say, has it been a bit of a negative? I think sometimes for Debbie, you know, I think she would maybe want to say to me, as she often has, you know, Trevor, just relax a bit and, <laughs> you know, and don't, don't, don't be too serious. And, and I think there has been some, some movement in my capacity to give myself a, some permission, to, perhaps, to not always to be seeking <laughs> <laughs> and, to, and to just accept the givenness of my life at the moment in all its imperfection and, and to find God in all of that imperfection and in the incompletion of things within my life mm -hmm. and to live a little bit more peacefully with that. And I think I'm on that journey. Uh, certainly, I think I'm on that journey at the moment. Was Dallas right in saying that you won't be content? You know, I think uh, someone asked me the other day and said, Trevor, what's on your bucket list? And I guess it's because at this stage of life, this is the question I get asked. You know, I mean, kind of the, the home stretch. And, uh, and it was really quite special for me to be able to say for myself to the person and really mean it, there's really nothing on my bucket list. What is on my bucket list is a deep desire to embrace the present moment as fully and as deeply and as richly as possible, that kind of, you know, God's home address in my life is this present moment. And that has, I think, softened a little bit the discontent and brought a measure. So while I can't say with Paul, I have learned to be content in all things, I would need to say with Paul, I'm still on that learning journey. And I, I feel I've taken a step or two along it, along the way. And there is a bit of, there is a deep embrace of the present moment, even as I wait for some of the things that my heart longs for. What, what does that look like to embrace the present moment? 
I've needed lots of grace. I've, I'm separated from my kids and from the grandkids. And so there's a part of me that just longs to be reunited. And that's a future event. So what does it look like? It looks like living deeply in the present moment with all that I'm missing, <laughs> even as my heart longs for a moment of reunion in the future. If that, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's, it's living a little bit in that tension of giving myself permission to live fully in the present, even as my heart waits for what it longs for. I think that's what it looks like. As you wake up in the morning and go throughout the ordinariness of your day. And life is very ordinary, you know, here in Benoni, most days are, are very, very ordinary and they become the place of it, of where I meet, where God meets me. Um, so there's a sense, and you're helping me to put this into words. There's a sense in which the seeking of the seeking God part of my life is something that's not future orientated. It's, you know, God, I wonder where you are here now in this moment that I'm living. Um, yeah. I think of being a seeker, much like being a learner, you don't arrive, but you gain, you, you move forward. Right. Yeah. And it's, a, uh, and it may be friending that, right. That I can, uh, uh, it's okay to be a seeker and, and a learner. Don't have to get there wherever there is. Uh, right. What did you learn from writing this book? Again, at another level, how central Christ is in my seeking that because my seeking can take me into very big spaces, very and spaces all over the place, the book helped me to see how Christ has been a companion on this search. So that was a learning for me, just how central Christ is in my seeking, and that somehow he's, he's like a light, just lighting, lighting up my steps as I walk and I found writing the last chapter very important for me because I think it's where I am at the moment. It gave me an opportunity to put into words. I almost, I think I learned that I, I write myself into being, that as I write, I come to see what I really, what is important for me. It's not a sense of, I know what's important and now I'm going to put it into words. It's a little bit the other way around, yes. that as I'm writing, I'm finding, yes, this is what is important <laughs> for me. Um, as I wrote the book, I think I came to know more and more what was important for me. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly uh, if I had to highlight a chapter, it would be the last chapter. I think the heading of the chapter was conclusion. And the copy editor said, no, 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 this is not the conclusion. It's a real chapter. And you need to honor it as a chapter. And that was quite helpful. That was the copy editor ministering to me a bit and uh, <laughs> almost honoring that last chapter as very, very important for me. What are you reading these days? I'm reading a book by an anchorite on silence. The theme of silence has become uh, important in my life. And I th think the best people to read 
of people who've spent their lives in silence. So I have been engaging very deeply the theme of silence, both not at only at a, at a level of, of, you know, theoretically, but also in my own reading. So that also, I guess, is an expression of my own, of my own seeking journey. I have a tendency to circle back to books that have been important. So one or two books that I'm circling back to, I need to even just like look at my bookshelf right here. Now Dallas has been a friend and I, I, I circle back to him. Different ways I circle back to Dallas. And then um, because of my because of my involvement in giving the exercises, training people to give the exercises, I have been reading quite a bit within the world of Ignatius and kind of the Ignatian tradition. I feel that that has been a treasure that has really been shared with me. So not too much that's new, uh, Nate. I seem to be coming back to Oh, and I've, a, a book that I've been I've spent two and a half years in, um, <laughs> and I read three, four pages each day, is The Master and His Emissary by uh, Ian McGilchrist, and uh, he's a neuroscience, and he wrote this book in 2010, and his work on the brain has been so helpful for me. And has he's given me language as to why I've been drawn in my life very much to the theological category of mystery and his work on the two hemispheres of the brain and the way the two hemispheres of the brain give attention to the world. I lived a lot, I think, in uh, the left hemisphere and his encouragement and to move more deeply into the, to the right hemisphere of my own way of relating to the world. It has been profoundly formative in my own life. He's given me permission to live in a way that is more open to mystery. And as someone who always wanted to explain things and always wanted to get them right, I found that was reductionist for myself. He's just helped me from his own world as a, as a neuroscientist, is a psychiatrist, but he also has a history in literature. So he's been able to bring worlds together. It has been a healing journey for me. Trevor, it's always a delight to get to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time and your continuing to show up and give these wonderful gifts to us in your writing. Well, thank you, mate. I've enjoyed this and uh, I've enjoyed thinking thoughts that I haven't thought before because of your questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just delights me. Thank you. <laughs> and that was Trevor Hudson talking about his new book titled Seeking God, Finding Another Kind of Life with St. Ignatius and Dallas Willard. Trevor's written a number of books, including Pauses for Lent, Pauses for Advent, and Discovering Our Spiritual Identity, Practices for God's Beloved. 
I've been privileged to interview Trevor a number of times before. I encourage you to check out episode 73, titled Holiness is Better Than You Think, episode 131, Listening to the Groans, and episode 154, Meeting Christ in Our Tears. We've also had Trevor on the Renovare webinar titled, Finding Good Words to Share the Good News. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare podcast. We're grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcast webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute. Visit our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.